Greetings, my wicked angels of music, and welcome to The Snub Club, the organization dedicated to Broadway musicals that were never nominated for the Tony Award for Best Musical. I am the Phantom of the Opera, of course. Oh, yes. Thank you. Silence. And here is your host for the evening or morning or mid-afternoon or whatever you happen to be listening to this. The musical man himself, John Bernasek. Take it away, John. Thank you very much, Phantom, as always. Now, I don't want it. You keep pushing the roast beef sandwiches. I don't want any of your homemade roast beef sandwiches. I don't even really know what you mean by that. Is the bread homemade? Is the roast beef? Don't get on the mic again. No, I'm not. It's all rhetorical after your intro. But thank you very much, Phantom. Uh, Patty, thank you very much. Of course, getting late tonight. You know, this is directly after our recording of the South Pacific episode. You're, you're, you're expecting. You're, you're, you're going to have a baby in a, a number of months. But you're here. And I, I thank you for it. your dedication as our producer and our engineer. It's just it's second to none. Second to none. Uh, so thank you again for listening to this, the second episode of The Snub Club. If you're listening to this, it's because you are a $10 a month Patreon donor. My God. I mean, I cannot believe I cannot believe that you're uh, being so generous, but I thank you from the bottom of my cold, dead heart that you're doing that every single month, and I hope that this can be uh, worthy of you. I really do. I hope that this can be worthy of your, of your time and money. Uh, this month, we are talking talking about Stephen Sondheim's Merrily We Roll Along. So to begin, let us get the show facts. Merrily We Roll Along is based on a 1934 play by George S. Kaufman, which bears the same title. Uh, It was also written by Moss Hart, and that play ran on Broadway for 155 performances. Like its musical adaptation, the play moves backwards in time to tell the story of an adult who was once fueled by dreams and has since been worn down by compromise. The team behind the musical jumped at the idea of casting young actors, so actors ranging in age from 16 to 20 years old in every role, and their audition process was held in New York, and it was met with great interest. Audience members walked out on the show's opening night, and the show closed within a matter of weeks. The day after the show closed, the cast assembled to record the cast album. I want to get these facts out right up top because they greatly impact my view of the show. I mean, for God's sake, the show is is about how dreams can be dashed with time, and that's exactly what happened to these young kids. Ugh, it kills me every time. The show originally premiered during the 1981-1982 Broadway season, and it was not nominated for Best Musical. It opened on November 16th, 1981, to be precise, at the Alvin Theater and ran for 16 performances. The book was written by George Firth, the music and lyrics were written by Stephen Sondheim, and the director was Harold or Hal Prince. In an irony I'm certain none of them could have missed, the failure of Merrily We Roll Along, which is chiefly about the bonds of friendship and collaboration breaking in the face of hardship, this show effectively ended the working relationship of Hal Prince and Stephen Sondheim until 2003 when Prince directed Sondheim's Bounce. The musical director for the original production of Merrily We Roll Along was Paul, oh boy, here we go again, <laughs> Gemminjani. 
Gemignani. Gemignani, we'll go with that. Ugh, I do apologize, Paul. The choreographer was Larry Fuller. The set design was by Eugene Lee. The lighting design was by David Hersey. The costume design was by Judith Dolan. And the original Broadway cast included Jim Walton, Lonnie Price, Ann Morrison, Terry Flynn, Giancarlo Esposito, uh, who you might know as Gus Fring from Breaking Bad, of course, Jason Alexander, who uh, I'm sure you know, of course, uh, as the star of the McDonald's McDLT commercial, of course. Sally Klein was also in the original cast. Other members included Jeffrey Horn, David Loud, uh, David Loud, yes, <laughs> Daisy Prince, Liz Calloway, love Liz Calloway, Tanya Pinkins, Abby, uh, and Abby Pogrebin, Pogrebin, having a hard time with names this this month. Uh, additional Tony nods, the, uh, okay, so not additional, the only, I should say the only Tony nod, the only nomination it, rece- it received uh, was for Best Original Score. That nomination, of course, went to Stephen Sondheim, so one nomination in total, and exactly zero wins at the Tonys, unfortunately. Well, how about we get a plot description in regards to Merrily Roll Along? Yeah, I like that idea, let's do that. The book and music of Merrily We Roll Along, including what songs are included and in what order they are performed, have been altered substantially over the years. It's very important to know. Of the many concepts from the initial staging that were later jettisoned, the biggest include the use of young performers uh, and a framework device that places the opening at a high school graduation. The show's many alterations have have been met with varying degrees of success. It's not unusual for a Broadway show to undergo major changes, but in the case of Merrily, it's clear that the changes were made to fix, quote-unquote, what was swiftly declared broken by critics in 1981. Since there's no way for me to get my hands on every version of Merrily's ever-changing book, I'm going to rely on Wikipedia's plot summary, which is from the 1994 York Theatre production. I'm also going to relay the events of the book chronologically, as I think that will be easier to process for those who have no experience with the show. The plot of the show focuses on three characters, our main trio, which is comprised of Franklin Frank Shepard, Mary Flynn, and Charles Charlie Kringus. The the chronological timeline technically begins in 1957. Frank and Charlie sit atop their apartment building, hoping to catch a glimpse of the recently launched Sputnik satellite. As they wait, the pair vow to adapt Charlie's latest play into a musical. Their neighbor, Mary, appears on the roof and meets them for the very first time. She has heard Frank playing his piano and admires his talent. Sputnik appears in the sky and the trio dream of what lies in store for them. Now let's jump to 1959. Frank and Charlie are trying to become successful songwriters, while Mary aims to become an author. The boys meet Joe, a producer who advises them to write more hummable tunes and leave their names with his secretary, Gussie, who is a key character. Fed up with the rat race, Charlie and Frank convince Mary to put up a cabaret review that showcases their respective talents. They hold auditions and bring another young performer, Beth, into the fold. Jump to 1960. Joe and Gussie attend the cabaret review at a club in Greenwich Village. Gussie, who is now Joe's fiance, uh, is visibly attracted to Frank. The group is surprised to learn after the show that Frank and Beth are going to be married, and 
though Beth's pregnancy seems to be a major factor in that decision. Frank insists that the decision was made out of happiness, not necessity. Mary, who has fallen in love with Frank, is heartbroken by the news. Jump to 1962. While at a party at Joe and Gussie's apartment, the latter pulls Frank aside to confess that she is unhappy in her marriage with Joe. She wants Frank and Charlie to write a show Joe is looking to produce. It's a splashy, Broadway-bound musical called Musical Husbands, uh, and she is set to be the star of this new musical. The partygoers are enchanted when Frank and Charlie are made to sing one of their songs, but the party growers then grow bored when Gussie insists that Charlie and Frank perform an encore. They make them perform the song a second time from the beginning, and everyone immediately loses interest. As a result, Charlie, who didn't want to perform the encore in the first place, uh, becomes disgusted and storms out. He is disgusted primarily, I interpret it as, uh, he is disgusted by Frank's need for validation. Frank, uh, I should say, was very eager to jump into that encore. Jump to 1964. Gussie is shown performing as the star in Musical Husbands during the show's triumphant opening night. The audience fucking loves it. Joe is ecstatic and eager to uh, declare that the show is a huge hit. During the celebration, Charlie learns that his wife, Evelyn, has gone into labor. Beth begins to leave with Charlie so that they can rush to the hospital and be with Evelyn, but Mary advises Beth to stay. She says, no, don't leave. I don't think that we can trust uh, Frank and Gussie alone together. I don't, want them to, I don't want them to be left alone together. And in that moment, Beth dismisses Mary's concerns, stating that she trusts her husband. We see Frank at the end of this scene standing alone as he absorbs the applause of his first major audience. Jump to 1966. Frank fights for the custody of his son, Frankie, during a divorce that has turned incredibly bitter. Beth admits that she still loves Frank, but will never be able to forgive him for what she now knows, which is the fact that he has been having an affair with Gussie. Charlie, Mary, and Joe urge a despairing Frank to take some time off. Jump to 1968. Frank returns from a cruise and is greeted by Charlie, Mary, and Frankie, who he has not seen since the divorce was finalized. Frank urges Charlie to option a film version of Musical Husbands as the money they would earn as a result would help offset the cost of his divorce. Charlie refuses to uh, indulge this. He says he tells Frank that it would only stall their new projects. Uh, Joe and Gussie then arrive to also welcome Frank and silently understood that Gussie uh, is still having an affair with Frank. Mary, who has been a teetotaler all her life, begins to drink out of sadness. There is this there is this weird vibe in the room. Everyone knows that this affair is still going on behind Joe's back, and it is crushing Mary. It's destroying any remaining respect she has for Frank, but she still has a, a raw sort of love for him in her heart, and it pushes her to begin drinking. Frank is ultimately left uh, alone, and he begins to write a new song for the first time in quite some time when Gussie shows up all over again. She is just left with Joe, but she shows up alone to declare that her marriage to Joe is over and that she intends to move in with Frank. Jump 
1973, Frank arrives at a New York TV studio with his wife, Gussie. That's right. When we go to 1973, he is now married to Gussie. Oh, boy. Charlie, who has agreed to do an interview alongside Frank, has grown quite bitter over the last few years. Uh, Mary, for her part, can barely manage to see Frank with Gussie without falling into a depression. During the interview, it is revealed that Frank has just signed a three-picture deal with a major studio. Charlie, who was not aware of this and assumed that he would get to keep writing with Frank, uh, bombs the interview and he makes a complete spectacle of himself and afterwards Frank ends their friendship. And then the final scene is set in 1976. Frank, who is now a major movie producer in Hollywood, hosts a party at his L.A. home to celebrate the release of his latest film, which everyone agrees behind his back is utter trash. He flinches upon hearing Charlie's name in passing. Mary, who is now a movie critic, becomes incredibly drunk and begins to lash out at Frank and the other partygoers. She insults Frank, highlighting how he sold out and that he didn't even bother attending Frankie's high school graduation. As the party comes to a close, Frank reveals to Gussie that he's been having an affair with his film's leading lady. His second marriage effectively comes to an end. So that's the story. Now imagine it if you actually watched the show. Imagine that timeline presented to you in reverse, starting with the events of 1976 and moving backwards through time to that rooftop Sputnik moment I described from 1957. People complained that the original production was very confusing, maybe because the young actors looked so similar and it was hard to tell the characters apart, or maybe it was just the nature of the story that made it hard to determine just when you were from scene to scene. Not unfair. I bet it's a lot easier to read and hear about this plot than it is to see it for the first time on stage without any context whatsoever. Uh, Director Hal Prince's solution uh, at the time was to put everyone in sweaters that displayed their character names or character types. One, One poor actor would be wearing a sweater that said Frank on it. Someone else would have the word producer. Another would have waiter on their sweater. I believe Mary's sweater read best pal etc, etc. It was seen as a truly bad, garish decision. And when you see photos of those sweaters, you can't help but agree. Here's my idea. And admittedly, as I've thought about it, it is maybe just as confusing, uh, if not more so than using young performers. But my idea is when casting the show, why not assemble different trios of actors who would play Frank, Mary, and Charlie in the 1970s, 1960s, and 1950s? So essentially, three trios of actors have each character, no matter the iteration, no matter who's playing the character, have those actors wear costumes that share a common color scheme or style. So Frank is always in some version of a deep red. Maybe Mary is always in a cream color. You you get what I'm saying. I realize that the show only covers 20 years and that the signs of aging wouldn't necessarily be as evident as they would over, say, 40 years. But then again, sometimes those changes are quite evident. For all I know, uh, this could prove, again, as I said, just as confusing, but it's my idea and I like it. 
right, okay. Put me in the director's chair, I guess is what I'm saying. For the purposes of researching this show, I listened to the 1981 original Broadway cast album, the 1994 off-Broadway revival cast album. I only have one big note about that, and that is the 1994 recording has way too much... There's a huge reliance, bizarrely, on robotic Casio keyboard synth. It's so weird. It's it, This is 94. The original album was released in 81. The 81 album really doesn't sound dated at all, but you jump to 1994 and suddenly... This thing, that that thing is just a really clunky time capsule that you don't really want to dust off. Instead, I would suggest listening to the 2012 concert cast album, much stronger, much stronger than the 94 version. It nixes the synth, and it provides a lot more dialogue, which is definitely appreciated when you're in my position and you're trying to figure out as much as you can about uh, the story of the show. Uh, this album also captures a lot of small lyrical changes. I had no idea... Lin-Manuel Miranda played Charlie in this production, the 2012 concert, but I recognized his voice and was immediately tickled and much more invested. If I don't make it clear enough during this episode, Charlie is my favorite character. And finally, I also watched Best Worst Thing That Ever Could Have Happened, which is a documentary about the the making and the aftermath of Merrily We Roll Along. Uh, That was uh, directed by Lonnie Price, who played Charlie in the original Broadway cast. Uh, It's amazing. I watched that documentary for the first time a couple of years ago, and it completely knocked me down. I I didn't expect it, but I I, I approached that documentary with what I thought were clear eyes, and it it really did throw me for a loop, because the main focus of the show is, uh, of the movie, I should say, is about how the show's failure and how it affected everyone involved. As I mentioned, you know, Sondheim and Hal Prince they, they experienced a uh, disillusion, a dissolvement of their professional relationship because the, the show's failure impacted them so much. All of the kids, these are kids, it has to be said again, 16 to 20 years old, they were, they were in greatly, greatly impacted, and their, their dreams were shaken and rattled. And a few of them, you know, Jason, Jason Alexander, Giancarlo Esposito, uh, they would go on to have unequivocally successful careers. But for the most part, a lot of them went into completely other careers. They left the world of the theater. They left the world of acting. It was a big shock to the system to hear people sitting down to talk about that and what it meant for them to leave an industry and stop pursuing a dream that they had had since they were kids. All of the people that are interview subjects in this documentary talk about how they loved theater from the first moment they experienced it when they were kids. The idea of getting rid of that dream of setting it aside or recontextualizing it, it hurt a lot. And I didn't realize how much hurt I had been experiencing as a performer who was also choosing to step off the path. Uh, The machine can wear you down. At a certain point, you might find a slot for yourself within its inner workings. But a lot of people just get worn down. And you can either, in in my experience, you can choose to indulge the bitter feelings you have regarding that, the bitter feelings that characters like Frank, Charlie, and Mary feel to a a great extent in Merrily We Roll Along, or you you can find happiness in other places. That's what a lot of people have a hard time dealing with, the fact that they always thought, I'm supposed to get my happiness from my career. I'm supposed to be a successful actor. That is going to validate me and affirm me as a person. 
what am I if I am not an actor, a performer, a writer? And you have to, you know, start telling yourself in that moment, you have to tell yourself every single day that you're so many things, that you're not just someone who has talent in regards to performing. You're, you have to learn all over again, oh, right, I'm a good person, I'm a valuable person, and I am very important to the other people in my life. I don't, I personally, I'm just talking about me now, I no longer cared about getting validation and applause and affirmation from strangers, from people who were of influence in the industry, people who most of the time I didn't think had very good taste. Uh, we, we definitely see a lot of characters like that and merrily we roll along. And people who use their positions of influence in ways that are fucked up and toxic. And I just said to myself, why? Why am I still doing this? Most of the time I'm frustrated and unhappy. And so why, why continue doing it if it doesn't make me happy? Watching the documentary, I, oh boy, I sobbed. I just sobbed because... No matter, no matter how much you understand how logical it is to stop, it's a, it's a grieving process at the same time. You have to sort of mourn a death, a, the death of that dream you had since you were a kid. And watching it the second time as prep for the snub club, I, I, didn't, I didn't cry, uh, I didn't sob, but I definitely could feel my body like I was having that physical reaction of moving towards tears all over again. Um, but I, I'm happy to say that I've come a long way since that first viewing. And by the time I got to my second viewing, I mean, I think I'm in a much healthier place right now. I was worried that I would start crying during this recording, but I don't think that's going to happen. No promises, though. You might hear some waterworks. Who knows? Let's talk about the songs. Oh, my God. I, the, the songs in this show are fantastic. I mean, this is my favorite Sondheim show. And I, I didn't know that I felt that way going into this, you know, research process. But of all the Sondheim shows that I have encountered, Meryl really does come off as the most personal, uh, the most raw, especially in its original form. It's so raw and shaggy. And I love that. I love how, I mean, you know, people bemoan the fact that it was imperfect. But what I have to impress upon you more than anything is that I love how the original is just all over the place and and loud and 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 crazy and weird and it's so angry at times and I really like that. I like high emotion. I love it. I have my hand in my chest right now. It's just oh so utterly delightful. Let's talk about these songs. So for the most part, I'm going to stick to analyzing the original Broadway album, but every now and then, of course, uh, we will be dipping into the other recordings, those being from 94 and 2012. A general thought on that original Broadway album and the production that it represents. The natural, earnest energy of the young cast is something that can only be imitated by older, more seasoned actors. And that's what you're going to get from any uh, present-day production of Merrily We Roll Along. There has never been a major revival that reuses the concept of young actors on stage. So the characters, no matter no matter who where they are in that 20-year time span, they're always going to be played by people in their 30s or 40s. I was taken aback by the power of the young actors and artists on that original album. Their passion and commitment to making strong emotional choices. They are not holding back at all, which makes sense when you uh, remind yourself that this album was cut the day after their show closed. Jesus, talk about emotion. 
I can't even imagine. I, I would have had a. I'm sure there were many breakdowns in that room. Their performances make me wish we could revisit the idea of casting young people. I know that I had my idea for three different trios, but I also just I would love to see young people doing this show. If you have any influence at the college or high school level, get merrily on the schedule pronto uh, to the songs themselves. The overture. <laughs> I love it. I love the sheer volume of the orchestra throughout this recording. And it all starts here with this boom, crash, clanging overture that left me dizzy, left my ears uh, ringing afterwards. But I had no complaints, let me assure you. Uh, And as for the overture's softer moments, of course, it has that all overtures have this general format of loud up top, gentle in the middle, and then a big finish at the end. But more so than usual, the softer moments in the Merrily Overture feel like the eyes, the, the eye of a storm. It's a brief respite from a piece that is otherwise tumultuous. It's big and it's bold and I love it. I'll also point out that uh, because this is an older recording, uh, the dialogue, the little dialogue you hear throughout the original album sounds as if it's emanating from a cave, like it's in an echo chamber. The words are clear, but they seem to be traveling to us over a fair distance. And it winds up feeling like we are actually being haunted by someone else's memories. It's likely an unintentional effect of what is just, you know, an old-fashioned mix, but it complements the show's reflective themes so well, nonetheless. The Hills of Tomorrow takes place at the high school graduation I mentioned earlier. So Frank, who attended this high school and wrote its official school song with Charlie back when they were kids, he arrives at the school as this hotshot movie producer, and he delivers a speech that bums out the graduating class so thoroughly. He sneers at their optimism, and he delivers this warning about how life Uh, has so much more in store for them than they could ever predict. The students, in turn, reject his aggressive pragmatism and ask him, you know, how did you get to be the man that you are today? It's a fine way to open the show, but like the framework in Man of La Mancha, if you recall Miguel de Cervantes uh, being thrown into the Spanish Inquisition dungeon, uh, much like that framework, you just want to get through it so you can start enjoying the real show. The framework is 
is the bread. Now give me that delicious sandwich meat. In all subsequent productions, uh, again, this high school graduation framework it was completely removed. I don't think it should be missed. I don't think I, I miss it necessarily. And th- I think the opening is just set in a sort of limbo space. We're going to be moving through time anyway, so why not do a sort of just abstract, ephemeral opening? I, I think that's that's just as good. Yesterday is done. See the pretty countryside. Merrily we roll along, roll along. Bursting with dreams. I'll say this about Merrily We Roll Along as a song, just on its own. We get so many reprises of the song, especially in later versions of the show. I think there are like seven reprises in total of Merrily We Roll Along, and I have no idea how you stage them. I try to put on my director's hat and, and, and picture what could be happening on stage during all of these you know, returns to that melody. How do you keep the audience from temporarily checking out, considering every reprise is essentially just the same piece of music. It becomes Pavlovian when you start to hear the melody, I would think you would just sort of glaze over and think to yourself I I don't really have to pay attention to this. We're sort of in an in-between moment. I should say all of those reprises, they do just act as transitions as we keep moving through the timeline. Uh, Those who closely follow Sondheim will recognize the melody he later used in Sunday in the Park with George. Uh, That would be the melody for Art Isn't easy. Uh, So let's hear the melody from Merrily. How does it happen? And now let's hear that lyric, Art Isn't Easy, from Sunday in the Park with George. Very short clips, but I just wanted you to hear that. Uh, Both Sunday and Merrily examine how artists risk personal failure when pursuing artistic satisfaction. I'm glad Sondheim was able to place this melody in a show that, uh, you know, found much greater success. But at the same time, it makes me wish that Merrily had initially found success all the more. The Hills of Tomorrow, Merrily We Roll Along, and Rich and Happy, they all kind of get smashed together into one big track. Uh, So in regards to the Rich and Happy portion, uh, I find it to be very cynical and very funny. Uh, It's this good uh, articulation of what it would be like to attend a obnoxious-as-fuck party populated by the rich and famous. Uh, It's excellent and made me never want to attend a party ever again. Well, when you do work together, which comes first generally? The words or the music? Generally, the contract. Sounds like you think making money is a bad thing for an artist. Money? Did I say money? No, I like money a lot. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's better than not. Mm-hmm. But when it's money, money, when you're into money, and you should be, listen, he does the money thing very well. But you know what? Other people do it better. And he does the music thing very well. And you know what? No one does it better. Still, the telephones blink and the buzzers buzz, and I really don't know what he does, but he makes a ton of money, and a lot of it for me. 
right? Ugh, I love the song Franklin Shepherd Inc. so much. Uh, and the original version is the best by far, hands down. I couldn't believe what I was hearing. Lonnie Price is just so amazing as Charlie. Charlie goes on such a journey throughout this epic number, and Price makes the character lovable even when he's at his most, you know, hateful and spiteful. Uh, he's delivering the rage of an embittered adult, the rage that the character has to have by tapping into his own wild, frenetic, angry energy, the angry energy of a kid. And it's perfect. He, he manages to meet the expectations of what it would mean to play an adult by tapping into his own uh, instincts, his own uh, well of emotion. I love it. I love it so much. One of my favorite moments in any version of the song is when Charlie talks about liking, liking money a lot, but he doesn't like oh, money, you know, oh, oh, money. I like what he just snorts. I don't know if he's, it's implied that he's doing like, like he's miming doing cocaine in that moment, but I just love that version of money. The most dark, devilish, fucked up form of money that you can earn and, you know, worship as an idol. I think what I'm saying is that I would love to play Charlie just so I can have the chance to perform this song. Good friends, point out your lies, whereas old friends live and let live. Good friends, like and advise, whereas old friends love and forgive. And old friends, let you go your own way. Help find your own demands on you should make demands on you well don't make demands you can't meet well what's the point of demands you can't meet well there's a time for demands whether you listen meet if he was right i'd be the first to admit it you know the last time you were right he was like he made me song Old Friends, I really enjoy the manic energy that Lonnie Price, Anne Morrison, and Jim Walton bring to Charlie, Mary, and Frank. Uh, the characters in this moment, they can hear that the foundation of their friendship is beginning to crack. And that cracking is becoming uh, louder and it's harder to ignore. But during the song Old Friends, they rally out of love for one another anyway. And they, they try to keep moving forward. Frank and Charlie have become very financially dependent on one another at this point. And the importance of that fact is starting to eclipse all else. It's eclipsing the love that they, that has, you know, been unsullied, been untainted up until these most recent moments. Uh, no one likes the idea of breaking up and starting over, breaking up with a romantic partner, a professional partner, a collaborator. No one likes the idea of breaking up, so they stay together, even if staying together poisons you in the end. It's, it's one of the more depressing tragedies to witness during Merrily We Roll Along. Not a day goes by 
not a single day But you're somewhere a part of my life And it looks like you'll stay As the days go by I keep thinking When does it end? Where's the day I'll have started forgetting? But I just go on thinking And sweating And cursing And crying And turning And reaching Not a Day Goes By as heard on the original album is a song for Frank, but it would later become a number for his wife, Beth. I think that's a really smart decision. You know, a lot of the changes that were made in order to fix the show, quote-unquote, a lot of them I don't think were all that necessary, but fleshing out Beth as a character, that that's, that's the best decision that they made by far. As I get the sense that in the original show, Beth had very little to do. Uh, I don't think that book was really doing her any favors. Uh, the song itself, uh, Not a Day Goes By, very solid compliment to Sondheim's Losing My Mind, which I believe I have referenced in the regular feed of the podcast. Uh, Both songs express the anger someone feels when they know they have love in their heart for someone, and they will never be able to get rid of that love, no matter how hard they try. Uh, They'd be better off without it, uh, but that just isn't in the cards for them. They they can't manage to uh, get over that hump. Beth loves Frank, uh, as we've said. She tells him, I I love you. I may always love you. But damn it, if she's going to let him hurt her any longer. Um, A lot of people would love to play Mary, the character of Mary, but I think Beth is the show's secret weapon. I think that's an ace up the sleeve. Really go for Beth. The Not A Day Goes By reprise on the 2012 recording, uh, which captures Frank and Beth's marriage ceremony. So the the reprise actually captures their very happy beginning together. Uh, During that reprise, uh, I I realized something very important. A very sudden realization, and this was laid into my research. The last five years is just Jason Robert Brown doing Merrily We Roll Along. How was he not influenced by Sondheim? show. I mean, frustrated artists, a crumbling romance, time travel. It's all there. Mr. Sondheim, you could have heard it. I sang you all the clues. That's a reference to the movie The Snowman. (laughs) Okay, there you go. Learn to live with it. Now you know. It's called flowers will. It's called apples rot. It's called thieves get rich and saints get shot. It's called God don't answer prayers a lot. Okay, now you know. The most important clip from the song Now You Know is what you just heard. I love I love that chunk of lyrics. It's called Flowers Wilt. It's called Apples Rot. Really like that. Such a practical, but what a doomsayer approach to how life just treats you like shit. And it's coming from Mary. In this moment, Frank's friends, again, are trying to cheer him up after his divorce from Beth. And their advice uh, in the process of cheering him up, it's so unintentionally terribly bad. It's just so terribly bad. They say to him, you know, essentially, run away, check out, do what's frivolous rather than work through what's tough. And, and, you know, as we said during the song, uh, old friends, 
Mary, Frank, and Charlie are actively choosing to brush their problems under the rug and not listen to the cracks as they sear through their foundation. And that's that's what's happening here, too. Again, I don't blame them, necessarily. I don't blame these characters for saying to themselves and others, no, there's not a problem. Nothing's going on. It's fine. We, we are friends. We will always be friends. Sometimes bad things happen, but uh, we, we can't call them out. We can't have a conversation because if we do, everything might be destroyed in the process. And so, of course, they would encourage someone else to have that line of thinking. Like, Frank, don't worry about it. You, okay, so you got a divorce from your wife and you lost custody of your kid. Who? Not who cares, but like you'll deal with it later. Go on a cruise or something and then come back and then we'll get to work. Lose yourself in your work. I think Frank even says on the 2012 recording, oh, I could write a show about divorce. A show that's set in a divorce court. Oh, wouldn't that be fun? Uh, Listening to several recordings made me realize just what Mary is trying to do during this song. She's emphasizing how Frank is now free to pursue new options now. He's no longer with Beth. He can pursue new options. And of course, she's talking about herself. She's in love with him. Uh, She wants Frank to figure it out for himself, but she's not above being a nudge about it. Uh, That is how Frank refers to her throughout the show. Uh, He he thinks of her as just being a nudge. She never comes right out, but she will will poke and prod until you get there, quote-unquote, yourself. It started out like a song We started quiet and slow with no surprise And then one morning I woke to realize We had a good thing going It's not that nothing went wrong Some angry moments, of course, but just a few And only moments, no more, because we knew we had this good thing going. Good thing going and its performance is one of my favorite moments from the show. It's just in terms of the characters bouncing off of each other. This is the moment where Charlie and Frank are made by Gussie to perform the song, Good Thing Going, uh, that they have written for these very sycophantic partygoers. And I, I, oh, I just love the idea of sitting next to the actor who's playing Frank and going through this whole song, this song that that represents them. I mean, and, and during the encore, you can feel Charlie's mortification oozing out of the track, especially when the their producer, Joe, starts drunkenly humming along with their tune he really does he ruins it and he makes it he makes it so much less valuable just by humming it in that way I wince and and wither right along with Charlie and I want to hug him so badly oh I want to play Charlie so bad Charlie you're my muse Frank you're an asshole Frank you should have never indulged that encore buddy Uh, Lin-Manuel Miranda gives Charlie a wounded puppy dog quality the character needs in these early timeline scenes he is the most sensitive of the three I think Mary can be tough She's she's having her heartbreak over the course of this timeline, but she's she's tougher. I think Charlie is much more uh, willing to be thrown to the seven winds by circumstance, by by emotions. He's a total Libra. <laughs> I'm a Libra. I think Charlie's a Libra too. He's very. Obs- I think the character is obsessed with balance and justice. And when people aren't able.
able to meet him exactly halfway and give him what he needs after he's been working so hard, I think that's when he feels the most disappointment in his friends. And he definitely feels that here. Did I mention I want to play Charlie? I want to play Charlie so bad. What's so crazy and haunting about Good Thing Going is that Charlie and Frank have written a song uh, that applies directly to their relationship. They, they are saying to each other, you know, you think I'm too ambitious. I don't think you're ambitious enough. It's hard for us to get on the same page, but we can't punish each other for not having the same instincts, dreams, desires, drive. That's, that's no one's fault. It's easy to get angry with each other, but we, we need to just take care of each other instead. They're trying to forgive each other in the present for their past, forgive each other in advance of future mistakes and hurt. The song is so powerful, but rendered powerless when Gussie and Joe put it in their splashy Broadway musical. There's Bobby and Jackie and Jack and Mary is more in the back. There's Ethel and Teddy and Pat alone. Plus Eunice and Peter and Jean and Joel. And what's his name? Stephen. And hold the phone, the one in the army. One in the army? Captain Major. Sergeant. That's it. Bobby and Jackie and Jack is a sneaky litmus test, intentional or not, that determines the kind of art you as an audience member would prefer to consume. Are you like the young characters who value this song as being witty and original, a, a real representation of their voice and perspective? Or are you like Joe sitting in this Greenwich Village audience who yearns for a catchy hook? So at first, I thought I related to Joe and found the song Bobby and Jackie and Jack to be clever, but ultimately the most skippable song on the album. Uh, I, th I felt that Good Thing Going seemed like a much better representation of Charlie and Frank's uh, inherent unsullied talents. Uh, with time, however, Bobby and Jackie and Jack grew on me. I like the idea of staging it so that it, this club in Greenwich Village, wherever we are, I, I want to stage it so that it's clear that we're in a dive club. This is not really a venue that should host performers. Uh, th there's a clash that's going on here. I want waiters loudly taking orders from customers, and I, I even want, I really want a janitor. I want a guy trying to mop less than three feet from the piano. Oh, <laughs> I really like that idea. Uh, look, uh, Universe, I'm just putting it out there. It's the secret. I'm putting it out there. Either I want to play Charlie or I want to be the director of a production. I, I put my hands together. I do not believe in God, but I am putting my hands together and I am praying. <laughs> Are you working on your book? Yes, Good, so. Mary. I really like opening doors. I really like all the songs. I really like it. But uh, opening doors is great. I gotta love, you gotta love the return of the piano plunking, the typewriter clacking, and the phone ringing. Those sound effects that we first heard during Franklin Shepard, Inc. It totally feels like I'm in that dingy room, that apartment with Charlie and Frank, as they slowly 
inch their way. They make progress on their respective projects. I dig that. I dig Mary calling them up to offer tough love and encouragement. I love how they push her to finish her book, even though she she herself is dealing with the, the fear of failure. And I love how we get an old-fashioned audition montage where someone is shown to be singing badly. I, it's it's so old hat, but I really love, I love the joke of someone singing badly during an audition. I just find it to be just plain funny. In every version of this song, at one point, Frank picks up the phone and says Chinese laundry, but in the 2012 version, the actor playing Frank says Chinese laundry. Um, no. Uh, it also tickled me that Joe's idea of a hummable tune, uh, Joe appears during the opening doors sequence to talk about the importance of a hummable tune. And in the, in the 2012 recording, he hums Some Enchanted Evening from South Pacific. Thinking back, yeah, Some Enchanted Evening, of course Joe would love that. It's, it's truly the definition of a lovely, yet essentially empty earworm. I, I, I want to say uh, something about Mary. With my director's hat on, I had some thoughts about how to play Mary, and it kind of struck me while listening to Opening Doors. Amy Ryder's performance on the 94 recording, it's it's just too hammy for my taste. I'm not gonna be too blunt or I'm not I don't mean to, I don't mean to be harsh about it, but it's it's I don't think it's a very good performance in regards to this character. Amy Ryder gives Mary this aggressively offbeat squawk. Let's just hear a little clip of the dialogue. I never drink coffee. He handled that well. Caffeine isn't good for you. I'm aware this is just a formula. But my next movie, you wait. I gave up waiting. Okay, so you got that. Whereas Celia Keenan Bolger is much more naturalistic on the 2012 recording. Let's hear that exact same line of dialogue from the 2012 recording. Poor Frank. I never drink coffee. He handled that well. Caffeine isn't good for you. Look, I know this was just a formula He's movie. loyal as hell. For my next picture, you wait. I gave up waiting. I just don't think you need to make Mary a weirdo to justify why Frank would never take a romantic interest in her. I think playing up the weirdness of Mary would just encourage a regressive caveman sort of reasoning from the audience. I think they would start to think, oh, yeah, 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 I get it. He he doesn't like her because she's quite obviously odd. I think that's, I think that's silly and simplistic. Uh, people aren't attracted to their friends all the time. We don't need Mary to be a supreme good to justify Frank's decision. I'm probably being, uh, maybe I am being a little too harsh here in regards to Ryder's performance, but it did wind up being another reason for me to recommend avoiding the 94 recording. Something is stirring, shifting ground, it's just begun. Edges are blurring all around, and yesterday is done. Feel the flow, hear what's happening, we're what's happening. Don't you know, we're the movers and we're the shapers. We're the names in tomorrow's papers. Up to us, man, to show them. Okay, so clearly Our Time is my favorite song from the entire show. How could it not be? Our Time is a perfect song. 
how, how you cannot fall head over heels in love for the people who sing this. If you don't feel yourself swelling up, inching toward, or completely falling into tears during that beautifully endless repetition of me and you at the end of the song, when they just keep saying me and you, me and you, me and you, this declaration of unity, a bond that can never be broken that we know will be broken. How does that not rip you apart? Sondheim captures blue skies and pink sunsets and pure unpolluted starlight with this song. And maybe I'm getting all of that imagery from the original poster. That's probably true. But it really does. It evokes environment. It evokes fucking time and space. It's just amazing. It's one of his finest achievements. And that song alone should have earned Barely Roll Along the Best Musical Award simply by existing, simply by writing our time. Sondheim should have taken home the Best Musical Award. Uh, the original album does end with a reprise of The Hills of Tomorrow, that school song. Our time, as I said, is it's the perfect way to close out the show, so I'm not surprised that a reprise of the school song feels like an anti-climax. Uh, it's nice to know Charlie and Frank cared for each other even when they were kids, even at that young an age, but if we aren't already invested in mourning of the death of that friendship, it's not going to happen in the last five minutes. Leave us with that image of our trio on the top of that apartment building. That's glorious. And that's what everyone does. That's what everyone did in future uh, productions. And I think that's very smart. Now, songs that were added for those subsequent productions include That Frank. This is essentially a reworked version of Rich and Happy from the original uh, production of the show. Uh, it allows us to see how far Mary has fallen off the wagon. A bit, there's That's a big focal point. The fact that Mary is completely smashed at this party. Uh, we also have Growing Up. Life is not Knowing what you want, darling, that's the only thing to know. As I told you moons ago, darling, nothing wrong with wanting. Nothing wrong with wanting me, darling, also nothing wrong with not. This is the song in which Gussie tells Frank that she's going to move in with him and that he needs to stop caring about what he should want and he should start taking what he does want. Even if he thinks that it's wrong, if other people would tell him that it's wrong, if he wants something, he should take it. And of course she is talking about herself. She's saying, don't worry about my relationship with Joe, how it's going to impact everyone else around you. I want you and you want me. Let's just focus on that. The 94 recording presents Gussie as a character as if she's this femme fatale temptress, while the 2012 recording, as I said, provides a lot of dialogue, it does the job of making her human, which I really appreciate. She's determined she has to be with Frank. She has to be with Frank. Because if Frank were to leave her, what has their affair in the last several years of their lives meant? It will have meant nothing. She doesn't want to face that. She doesn't want to face the question of what this all means, if, if she's going to just be left alone at the end of it. So she's determined to legitimize their relationship. And I have to assume that is what immediately informed their decision to get married. We are a real couple now. You know, we, we played around behind other people's backs, uh, but we're not worrying about that anymore. Now this is official and it's respectable. Uh, there are also, I should say, in the 2012 version of Growing Up, some very nice Bacharach-style horns. 
horns. Who doesn't love a Bacharach horn? The Blob is a song that bookends Good Thing Going and further emphasizes the idea that Gussie's friends are a little more than easily distracted sycophants. I want to play this moment from the 2012 recording. Uh, It's a moment between Charlie and Beth, which I just find very funny. Here we go. There are a lot of sophisticated people here. Oh, God. If I'd known that, I would have worn earrings. Those people over there, they're smoking marijuana. I've smelled that before in the village. I thought it was autumn. Very funny. Later recordings also include Gussie's version of Good Thing Going when she's performing in in the show Musical Husbands. It started up like a song. It started quiet and slow with no surprise. And then one morning I walked to realize we had a good thing going. Uh, we're supposed to, in that moment, mourn how the song's trajectory took it from being uh, really small and intimate, uh, and it got blown out into this cheesy showcase spectacle. But the cheesy part of me actually really enjoys Gussie's cover as well. Of course, not as much as the original, but I, I like a splashy. I just like it. I like it when Gussie belts out this. Ver- I know it's silly, but I just I like it. So sue me, sue me. I'll see you in court. Those are my thoughts on the scores. So of course, now it's time to get final thoughts and determine if the show that we're talking about this month should have been nominated. It wasn't nominated, but should it have been nominated for the Tony Award for Best Musical? Uh, To review, in 1982, the Broadway show that won Best Musical was nine, and the other nominees that year were Dreamgirls, Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat, and Pump Boys and Dinettes. So yes, Obviously, Merrily We Roll Along should have been nominated. The fact that its only Tony nomination was for Best Original Score is honestly insulting when paired with the fact that it wasn't nominated for Best Musical. Maybe the youth actors, you know, maybe the youthful actors didn't work. Maybe the book needed help, but the score itself it hasn't really changed that much over the years that the recognition should have been given. Kick Pump Boys and Dinettes out of this group. Put Merrily in its place and have Dreamgirls win the award over nine. Why not? If we're traveling back in time to make changes, let's do a lot to improve this clusterfuck of a lineup. I mean, Pump Boys and Dinettes, really? I don't I don't even know a thing about it, but I know it's I know it's trash. That's just my gut talking to me. Get out of here, Pump Boys. One last thing before we wrap up this episode, I just want to say that of the 14 new Broadway shows that Sondheim has been involved with over his career, I emphasize new only because a few of his shows technically premiered on Broadway as revivals of shows that began off Broadway. So again, of those 14 shows, six were not nominated for the Tony Award for Best Musical, and then another five, five separate shows, were nominated and took home the prize. Uh, Three were not nominated at all. Uh, So, of course, uh, those are uh, Merrily We Roll Along, of course, and then the other two are Anyone Can Whistle and Do I Hear a Waltz. When you take all of this information into account, that's an astounding track record. 
And it is it is one that nonetheless makes the lack of recognition for a show like Merrily sting pretty hard. Luckily, bittersweet but ultimately happy ending here. The show, of course, went on to find its place in the hearts of so many people. I'm one of those people. I'm so grateful for the existence of a show that pushes me to such extended depths. I, it makes me so sad and it makes me so happy. I feel such real anxiety for the characters in certain moments. I hope to one day, I hope to one day see it. I know there is a revival going on right now. I think it actually just got extended. I was reading on Playbill that it got a minor extension through, I think, mid to late April. Uh, so if you're in New York City and you have the ability to go see that, please do. I, I think they're utilizing a really small cast for that. I think they've cut basically the ensemble entirely. Um, but yeah, go see it if you can. Please, please. Uh, so that is the uh, end of this month's episode of The Snow Club. Thank you so much again for donating. I hope that uh, you enjoyed this episode as much as you did the Amelie episode. And uh, uh, before we announce the subject of April's episode, why don't we get, why don't we just have a little treat? Why don't we listen to Jason Alexander's McDonald's McDLT commercial in full? Hit it! So you're getting tired of lettuce and tomato hamburgers in this town that don't quite make it? Yeah! You say that just once you'd like your hamburger hot and your lettuce and tomato cool and crisp all at the same time? Yeah! Well, I say you got it. I'm talking McDonald's new lettuce and tomato hamburger, the McDLT. I'm talking quarter pound of beef on the hot, hot side. And the hot stays hot. The new McDLT, hot, hot. crisp lettuce and tomato on the cool, cool side. And the cool stays cool. The new McDLT, cool, crisp. The beef stays hot, the cool stays crisp. Put it together, you can't resist. The hottest taste, the coolest dish. Keep the hot, hot, keep the cool, cool. McDLT, McDLT, hot, beefy McD, cool, crisp LT, McD, LT. It's a good time, hot, beefy McD, for the great taste. Cool, crisp Love that commercial. Watch it on YouTube. The audio doesn't do it justice. You gotta watch the video. Jason Alexander's in a white tuxedo and he's just hip happen dancing his he's just walking around with a John Travolta groove in his step and it oh boy it is dumb. It's real dumb. I really like Jason Alexander. I, I do find her to be very funny and charming. <laughs> that's that's a very endearingly silly commercial. Uh, so we've come out of that commercial. Now I'm going to tell you what we're going to be talking about in April. It's a weird fucking show. It's a weird, goony, old show. And it's about fucking talking dolls, man. And if you know what I'm talking about, you say it with me wherever you are. If you're at the gym, if you're at a bar, I don't care where you are. Say it with me if you know. The title of our next show is One, Two, Three. Flahooly! That's right, I'm going to be covering Flahooly in April. I hope that you uh, join me, and hopefully by that time we'll have even more $10 a month uh, donors who will be listening along with you. Uh, again, thank you, thank you, Patty, thank you, Alex, for our logo, thank you, Zach, uh, for the music that... I, I, I should say, Zach's music does not play during the Snub Club episodes, uh, because we're we, I, I put together that, that utterly ridiculous chorus line fandom cue that you're going to hear again in a second. Uh, but I, again, I gotta, gotta thank Zach anyway. So I, I bid you a uh, good day, good night, whatever I say at the end of the regular feed episodes. And, uh, th- thank you. I'll see you in April for Flahooly. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.